Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is Bex Atwood. Bex, who lives on the Kitsap Peninsula in Washington State, is a witch, horticulturalist and paranormal investigator who, in 2021, joined the Liminal Earth Project alongside Jeremy Puma and Garrett Kelly, who I spoke to in episode 19, way back in 2019. In the interview, we talk about the origins of Bex's interest in the supernatural, her investigations of haunted spaces and how that led to becoming part of the Liminal Earth setup. Our discussion includes topics such as the nature of hauntings, the value of respecting and understanding your environment when investigating the paranormal, some of the projects the Liminal Earth team are currently involved in, and much more. A very interesting conversation indeed. Enjoy! Bex, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So what first got you interested in the paranormal? Oh man, so I, I'm one of those people who I guess was just always, was always pursued by weird and unexplainable things. Um, I grew up, um, my family, we kind of refer to it as like, we all grew up haunted. Um, we grew up in like this really old house, um, had a older, uh, unalive resident and she would get upset anytime we would do any sort of renovations on the house very stereotypical it also had like the the raw earth dirt floor in the basement and anytime I'd have to run down to get something canned I would be terrified um but then you know as I began to grow older um start to communicate with some of my other family members um we ended up actually having parallels in our stories and we believed that we were seeing some of the same things. Um, and so that is still kind of unanswered and still actually pursuing answers in that area. Um, but I also grew up in a family dynamic where we were very, very religious. We were very evangelical. And so it was actually very frowned upon, um, to explore that in any capacity and not only was it frowned upon, but I was told fairly often to fear it. It was 100% out to get me. And um, yeah, took a long time to kind of escape that mentality. (laughs) Oh, I can imagine. I I was going to ask, actually, as you were describing that, do you think those two things are connected? The fact that you were part of a a religious family relative to the ghost that haunted your house? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, Sometimes yes, sometimes no. As I've grown older and and began to kind of research from an exterior perspective, what exactly group, like the Christian group I was involved with, it's actually very esoteric. And um, they're ones who speak tongues and do like ceremonial dancing. They, um, some of the more extreme ones experiment with like poisons and like venomous animals. So um there are some inklings to me like, oh, okay, that might have brought on some stuff. I think maybe just whatever group we were involved in might have hatched this. Um, but what is interesting to me and what gives me pause about all of that is um, my family members who were not involved in this 
are also being affected. And so we're, we're kind of of the mindset that maybe it was a past family member, but why are they interacting with us? You know, we didn't know them. It's, there's a lot of questions there. Um, but I do sometimes wonder if at least a portion of it is because of like the crazy esoteric that came on under the guise of Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. So is the house still in your family and is it still something that is um, apparent there, the, that being whatever you feel that it is? Um, so we don't have the house anymore. Um, one of the houses that my cousin, who has also experienced phenomenon, um, we were able to contact the original owners of that house um, and they've explained uh, activity as well. So um yeah we we know that they're experiencing activity but the original farmhouse i grew up in we no longer have access to um and i've spoken to like my stepmother for instance and she claims to have zero experiences um but i'm i detached from that church when i was about 16 kind of went my own direction um and i dove really deep into the paranormal and i ended up having a like column in the local newspaper where every week i would write about whatever investigation I was doing or some sort of local lore or, you know, teen spook spot. Um, but as far as like the childhood hauntings and stuff are concerned, I feel like the more I dig into it, the more questions I get. <laughs> and it sends me down all these different rabbit holes. Um, so I'm just trying to chase those and, and stay sane <laughs> and productive. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So what about that, that column that you were writing? What sort of things did you cover in that? That sounds really interesting. Yes. Um, I was able to find one archived, but the rest are just kind of lost, I guess. It was a really small town. Um, but I started by just covering every single week. I would look into like local haunts. And this actually took place in the Midwest of the United States, um, mainly in what we call the Kentucky in our region. So it's the border of these two states. Um, and so I would look into the history and um, one week it would be, oh, there's this haunted Victorian Airbnb or, well, then it was just a and b I guess. <laughs> but <laughs> I was looking into bed and breakfast where people reported, you know, seeing uh, shadow people in their bed. And um, I would kind of do a little story on that. But then some days it would be more of like an actual field report of I went to this cemetery where this lore has been. Um, reported. This is what I experienced. Here are my uh, thoughts on this location. And and I would often do series like that. So I would I would go back to return spots. And and we were really interested in the idea of um, if I would be able to experience this lore the more that I more time I spend at these cemeteries and these locations. Um, and it ended up allowing me to kind of realize oh how much of this is even potentially being generated by these stories being told over and over and over again. Um, there's one that sticks out, especially of this white horse that would appear in the cemetery and it would chase off trespassers. Um, and I have spent, I've been to this cemetery at least 20 times. I've camped out multiple times in the forest behind it and did not see a white horse. Um, but I have seen um, very coincidental manifestations um, one of them took form of this lady in red through a Polaroid picture, just as we were talking about her. Um, so I guess my main mission was to, I love telling stories, 
Um, that's probably why I'm with the group I am with, but it came from a place of wanting to share these stories and wanting to, um, explore. And I was very young when I wrote it. I was about 17 when it started. Um, so I have a lot of different ideas now and, and looking back on some of those things, I'm even a little embarrassed, um, but like I, I, I have a vivid memory of publishing a picture um, with a flash that was just um, what I thought were orbs and <laughs> were bugs and, and, you know, all of these wonderfully reflective natural things. So um, looking back at those times, I'm, I'm thinking, wow, uh, it was really interesting to, to sort of begin touching the waters of like, potential thought forms or potential energy being created just through storytelling and through people visiting under these ideas. And then what part of it was like genuine, um, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it was great that you had that ability to have an interest in these things on your own terms after, after what you were told about that ghost at your family home being out to get you. I imagine this was a a time when you were able to sort of, meet these things on your own terms and and it be a more benevolent experience right it's it's difficult to um I don't think it's difficult I would say it's it's just it's really intimidating when you've been told your whole life like hey this thing is not only out to get you but if you were to pursue it back like you are toast like your turtle soul is toast and um I remember a specific moment where I sort of officially denounced all of that and the first time that I was truly able to like hold a, like a paranormal book in my hand without feeling that overwhelming guilt and shame. Um, and I think I just went so full force hard in the opposite direction as soon as I was able to come to that uh, realization and conclusion on my own of like, okay, now I'm going in the other severe direction and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go from fearing this and um, having all these negative experiences to seeing what happens if the only thing that changes is like my mentality on the situation. Hmm. And what do you know? I had positive experiences. <laughs> did, did you find that as time went on, you used less definitive labels to explain things? I'm thinking back to when I was growing up. I, I loved the X-Files. It was my favorite show. And I, I still do. <laughs> um, but, but watching that and, and sort of reading magazines about the UFOs and these things, it felt very much as though, you know, UFOs were spacecraft from outer space and ghosts were the spirits of, of the dead. They were very much that. And, and everything, and, you know, Nessie was a plesiosaur. But over time, and especially now, I the need to sort of put an exact name to something feels feels less important and more appreciating the, the lack of identity almost. But even in that, there is still something there. Does that sound familiar to you? Absolutely. I think that I think that when I was young and when I was doing all of this, I I wanted so badly to to have some sort of validating experience. Um, and I wasn't so much as worried about um, my personal experience and my um, how it affected me on this personal level. I was really focused on getting evidence so that I could prove to these people that read my column, like, okay, this exists. This is what it is. Um, so at first I was very focused on, um, yeah, something definitive, something that I can show proof to people and and have this overall very validating cathartic experience, which 
makes sense when you know my background. Um, but then I'm slowly progressing into, okay, my intention is becoming more pure, more curious. I'm having more significant, but more subtle experiences. Um, how important is proof versus my own personal experience? And so over the course of time, I've slowly removed myself from wanting to claim anything as definitive and wanting to, you know, capture evidence. And now my focus is more on my personal experience and those subtle synchronicities and things that, um, you know, when accumulated are, are very significant and very um, life altering in my experience. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Saying that, though, that there are some experiences that people have that are very uh, explicit in a way, like they're ones that either have multiple witnesses. It's it's not subtle. It's it's very sort of in that person's face. What is it, do you think, that makes that difference? What is it that can sort of make the the other, the, the paranormal sort of manifest sometimes in extraordinary ways? Right. That's something that I honestly think about all the time, because as I sit here and I listen to myself say, oh, my, you know, when my intention changed, the phenomenon changed. And while that's true in my case, um, it isn't true for other things. And so it feels it feels a little uneven, a little unbalanced, because while I do believe that, I also am hearing these stories and um, seeing these rather extreme displays of activity. And, and you're wondering, like, is this what's truly going on here? And I have to kind of remember how folks take different approaches to things like when they're um, physically touched or maybe even scratched during an investigation and how that on the surface is a very negative experience. You, um, you know, don't want to experience something like that. Um, but then there's an argument that it could be potentially the only way that something can communicate in that way. And so we're perceiving it as this negative thing. It may have caused you like bodily harm. Um, and that's not okay. There's a whole thing around boundaries when exploring the paranormal. Um, but on the flip end of that, um, what if they've been trying to reach out for years and years and years and they're, and they're so frustrated that that's the only way that they can get any sort of attention. Right. Um, so that's where my mind goes, but then I'm also thinking, the temperament as wide as it can be for a human. Um, imagine even after death, I don't think that that temperament changes. So um, there's totally 100% experiences that people have that are genuine and they are not positive and, and they have this lasting effect that almost leaves this bad taste in their mouth. And so how, how do you confront that? How do you process that as an investigator? Um, I'm actually dealing with a case right now um, on the peninsula that I live on where um, this woman's art is being destroyed in her home. Um, and she is like, I don't know what this thing is. I don't know why it's so against me, but it's it's destroying these things that I'm pouring my heart and soul into and I'm painting and, and I wake up and they're destroyed. And, and she doesn't have roommates. You know, she doesn't have, no one else has access to her house. We've gone through all of the rigmarole of that. Um, but in my head, I'm like, why this is something that I, we are both perceiving to be malicious. Why would you just attack someone's creative piece? Um, it doesn't make sense. And so I say, Oh, you know, my intentions are pure. This is what happened. But then you have those exceptions and you have these people who are having very 
drastic negative experiences? And what do you tell them? <laughs> what do you, how do you aid that? Um, and that's currently what I'm trying to figure out. Um, but I don't, when I say all of these things, I really am not trying to be dismissive of those people who do have these negative experiences. And I do want to hold space for that. Um, but yeah, the majority of my personal ones have been very neutral. Uh, the childhood one was a little more on the negative side. Um, but I, it's really hard to sort of get into like the ways of taking care of things like that without getting like deep into like witchcraft and my personal beliefs and, and things that may be um, off-putting to other people in the paranormal community who don't subscribe to those things. And so when I interact with people like this woman on my peninsula, those are the kind of solutions that I start to offer of like creating personal boundaries and um, cleansing homes and things like that. Um, but I, I'm aware that some people aren't super into that or um, my family background. Those people think that that is the utmost evil thing that I could possibly be doing with my time. And so it's all this balancing act. And I feel I feel like I'm trying to hold space for all of those possibilities, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, that that case that you're helping that lady with sounds really interesting. And just out of interest, are the paintings, are they sort of abstracts or landscapes or portraits? So she does mostly landscape. Okay. She'll do like, um, they're actually quite gorgeous too. They're all over the peninsula and she'll take photographs and then she'll go and she'll repaint them. Um, and they're gorgeous, but they're not, um, it would be really interesting if they were portraits or something, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying to think about what would make something attack them. Right. Um, but then I guess with, with poltergeist, there is always that idea that some of that energy comes from the person themselves. Can you, can you talk about it? It's all the, the, what, your, what your theories might be on this. I mean, if not, no problem, but I'd be fascinated to know what you might think. Sure. Um, I know that she's a rather private person, so I won't um, share any of her personal details, but I've, I've been able to discuss this with her a few times now, and I do have my first visit coming up. Um, so right now I'm still pretty open-ended on what it may be, and I think it goes back to like not wanting to be too quick to make anything definitive. Um, and I want to get a feel out for her as a person. Um, but one of my first things too, is I start to document all of the, um, natural elements of this property. So I'll document, um, what kind of plants and trees are there. Um, if there's any sort of like quartz vein running underneath her property, I'll get, um, a couple of different kinds of surveys on the property. Um, and then I start to talk to her, um, and see if there maybe are some life events going on outside of this that may trigger poltergeist-like activity. Um, but then when you explore the peninsula itself, it's kind of this mishmash of Bigfoot sightings, alien-type experiences, and then your traditional, you know, human hauntings. Um, we have quite a bit of folklore as well around, um, like, shape-shifting beings. And so as of right now... Um, I'm kind of just staring into this pot of possibilities and I'm like, it could be a myriad of things. Um, but I, I think I'm focused on getting to know her as a person, seeing if there is potential for some pol poltergeist-like activity. Um, and then I'm wanting to get to know the property because that'll give me a lot of insight into, um, into that from more of a magical side. Um, 
different plants could potentially have different impacts on the environment. And so seeing different patterns of like, okay, well, these plants are paired together at this spot where there's this reported UFO crash. Um, is that mimicking this energy? It's it's very rigorous and it's very, very long-term. When I talked to her, I told her like, it's going to take about six months to even just kind of gather all of the data, talking to her, processing it, and then um, feeling comfortable enough to go over and start to investigate our, our mutual comfortability with each other. There's so much, <laughs> there's so much to do. And it's, it's so hard with it being so early on, but I have theories and, and that's really based off of just the peninsula's history. And um, I've just never, I've never dealt with anything that would just outright sabotage like that. That's really rude. <laughs> It's, I mean, it's sort of classic poltergeist activity, eh? but it feels like it's there's something going on which you wouldn't normally think of in a in a standard poltergeist investigation. I guess because for the most part, the ones that are well known happy happen in suburban areas and to younger people. So, I mean, do you think this is a poltergeist case? Is that term suitable? I mean, as of right now, I would say. I would, I would claim that as like, yeah, that could be poltergeist activity um, with the painting. Um, I know that she does feel followed um, as she's navigating around her property, um, but she's also reported seeing some strange things in her woods. And so here on the peninsula, there's a very fine line between poltergeist activity and then like fey trickery. And there's a boatload of fey trickery around here, so I'm 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 kind of on that line right now. Of um, it's very poltergeist, but then it's also very trickster. But it's a little more malicious than the normal fey trickster things I've seen. It's typically um, they will take something um, that you use every day, like a phone charger or something. They'll hide it for a few days, and then you'll find it in an obvious spot, like on top of your made bed um, that you were just sleeping in. Um, it's very typically innocent, but um, can be annoying <laughs> when you need your phone charger. Um, <laughs> but this just feels a little more malicious or a little more personal. Um, so that's kind of why I'm not um, claiming the poltergeist either, because um, the poltergeist activity, I don't think would be that it would hit them that personal. I think it would be things to get attention or things from emotional flare-ups um, which could also be happening but the the fact that it's the painting and the fact that she's seeing things in the woods it, it makes me lean more fey or more um something more land-based than maybe something emotional or um coming from the experiencer it could be both <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> so um you're now part of the liminal earth project with jeremy and Garrett, who I interviewed a couple of years ago now. How did you get involved with, with that project? Yes, I am so happy to talk about this. This is one of my favorite stories. Um, so I moved to the peninsula and I started to experience strange things. And I started interacting with my neighbors and realizing that, oh, they have stories as well. Um, I ended up printing out a bunch of very vague flyers and posting them on telephone poles and bulletin boards all across the peninsula. And I began collecting stories from people. 
And it got to a point where I was like, what am I going to do with all of these stories? I'm just, I'm just sitting on this archive. Um, do I, you know, start a website? Do I do this or that? And as I'm talking to uh, a few friends, um, Amanda Paulson is one of them. Uh, she sent me the link for Lemon Earth's map. And I was like, this is next level. This is amazing. Um, and at the same time, Jim Perry is another friend and he uh, knows Garrett. They used to work uh, at a radio station together. And he's like, you need to link up with these guys. Um, I think you guys are kind of chasing similar things here. So um, linked up with them, talked and eventually Garrett and Jeremy invited me on a, an investigation. And this was a rather notorious location here, at least in the Pacific Northwest. Um, this was a rural sanatorium of sorts, um, but it wasn't for something like tuberculosis. It was actually um, this doctor and she was rather sadistic and um truly believed that starvation was a method of healing. And unfortunately, a lot of people fell um, through that. Um, and this location was actually being torn down. So we were able to be like the official last investigators to go check this out. Um, and so we we all met up at the house and uh, we did a little bit of silly TikTok filming and, and talking and um, eventually made our way into the house um, and before we knew it, we were in the basement with our tarot, our excuse me, tarot and oracle cards, our pendulums, all of our our accoutrement of investigation. We were kind of it's like show and tell. You know, Jeremy shows me the oracle of the the hypogeum, and I'm like, oh, look at this deck. And um, Garrett's filming, and um, very quickly we kind of had a, a routine going, and it, and there was this flow, and it all felt very natural. And through this process, we were able to get a few answers for the owners. Um, their main concern was, is this, are the spirits of this house or this facility okay with it being torn down? Um, and through reading cards, um, through a couple of other divinatory methods, we kind of came to the conclusion that not only was the house um, ready for destruction, but it was, it was um, welcomed. It was almost like it was its idea in that, um, discussed being very tired. There was a lot of vandalism. There was multiple uh, fires evident in the front of the facility and, and this house had taken quite a beating. And so we kind of came to the conclusion of maybe we're not speaking to an individual spirit. Um, we definitely didn't want to speak to like the doctor. Um, we believed that maybe we were speaking to the spirit of the land or the spirit of that facility itself that kind of oversees as like a guardian, which we now call like the liminal spirit. But we believe that it was um, fully prepared for demolition and that it was it was welcomed. And it was talking about finally being able to get rest. Um, and, and we ended up recommending that they plant a memorial garden for all of the victims that had fallen and to try to never even speak about the doctor, or say her name, um, because all of these investigators come through the space and, and they want to talk to the evil person. They want to talk and get, you know, some, some explosive proof for their, for their fans. Um, we came in and we were like, okay, we don't want to say this person's name. We don't think we should give them any attention. We think that we should focus on the victims and um, give them their due through a garden or through some sort of memorial. And then um, being able to communicate with what we believed was that overseeing spirit and, and finding peace in this demolition was, 
so awesome to be able to relay to the owners and then being like, okay, we did that as a team. We can do this all the time. <laughs> Let's do it. That's that sounds like a a fascinating place to explore and and a, and a great thing you did as well. And when you think when people go to these places and contact people that died there or worked there or had some presence there, do you think it is literally a part of that person or that person, or or is it something like um almost like the memory of the building? That's a good question. And I think about that a lot too. <laughs> and I go back and forth. Um, and I'm also someone who it can be, it can be either or, or it can be both. Um, so yeah. <laughs> and I, especially about that, I, I definitely believe um, this is coming from the witchcraft part of me, but I believe that we leave pieces of ourselves everywhere. Um, and I believe that some of those can even have their own consciousness and their own agenda. So uh, we call those shadow selves. And um, I believe as well that when someone experiences trauma or some very strong emotion in the space that stains the wood and it stains the environment um, and it just doesn't leave. And so I think a lot of the times when people are trying to pick up on that, it may not even be that 100% conscious spirit of that victim. It may just be a piece of their shadow self, or it may just be the stain that you are picking up. And that's kind of the same concept as residual. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's difficult. I, I think it's pretty rare that it's just that spirit is hanging out there. That is home now, especially when it's a traumatic situation like that, um, where you hit like this was somewhere that you were tortured and, and died. Um, I do think that that is a possibility in places like hotels, uh, like liminal or transient spaces or, or places where people have very great memories. I could see spirits or beings wanting to return to those places. But when it comes to more traumatic spaces like sanatoriums, I really feel like it's a, an emotional stain situation or like a shadow self, just a piece of them there. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, like you were just saying there, a hotel is a liminal space. And I suppose in a way, it's the the sort of the warehousing of people is unusual. Like it's not, um, I wouldn't say it's not natural, but it's a, it's an unusual way for people to interact in terms of what that might create on a, on a metaphysical level, the, in, in some other realm, as it were, the, the after effects of, of, of doing that to people. Not, I mean, not in a hotel, but like in a hospital, like the place you were investigating. I, I wonder, I wonder if bringing together all those people and many of whom are having a negative experience, that's, you're absolutely going to get the the sort of activity that that you were investigating and and that place is going to have the reputation that it had yeah absolutely um i i agree i i definitely think that even just the pure concept of what happened there is enough <laughs> to leave to leave something supernatural behind um exactly what that is um and how deep that goes is open to interpretation and i'm someone who could have these types of conversations forever. Um, and I don't know if I'll ever land on anything truly definitive or I'll, if this will ever be solved. Um, but isn't there a part of us that doesn't want it to be, you know? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I I always kind of circle back to that. Even though this stuff absolutely fascinates me and I will research it and investigate it as much as I can for the rest of my life, 
if I ever got a full answer, I think I'd be devastated. <laughs> so <laughs> exactly. So uh, yeah, I I absolutely know what you what you mean there. <laughs> yes, I think one of the best examples with at least the liminal Earth end of that would be we have this park where not on one but two separate occasions we've had a very mysterious pile of peeled oranges appear. And it kind of shakes the neighborhood and, and it leads to all of these theories. And so um, anytime that we share anything about it, we get a lot of feedback and we get a lot of, um, oh, maybe there's a, a marmalade company nearby. Maybe there's a bar. You know, we have all of these um, very mundane explanations. And so we'll check them out. And we're like, okay, not this one, not this one. And there are a few that we're holding space for and saying, okay, um, mundanely speaking, it could could very well be this, this, or this. But <laughs> what if, what if it's this, this, or this, this very metaphysical, very woo-woo explanation? And I remember Jeremy specifically saying, you know what, I don't want to ever find out <laughs> for sure. So <laughs> yeah, like I was saying, I, I'm, I'd be absolutely the same. I'm just going back to what we were talking about with the hospital you investigated. Um, Something that makes me think of with buildings in general is that I think it's in Japan. There's this tradition that if, if a household object gets to 100 years old, it, it gains a soul, like it achieves a soul. And and I wonder <sighs> if in old buildings, you know, if enough people living in a building or being in a building, their energy after time just sort of gives the building some kind of soul, a consciousness. Um because I, there are buildings that do feel like that. I've definitely been to places where you feel like the building could literally tell you a story. There's so much has happened in it, and I know from a somewhat from a very sort of objective analytical viewpoint, that's that's just history, and and you're you're sort of um, you're putting that on the building. But I don't know. I that's an idea that I I like, especially about the the household objects. Anyway. <laughs> Yeah, that's beautiful, though. I've never heard um, of, of that, like, Japanese custom. I think that's beautiful. Um, and I think that um, I think that we should have something like that here. <laughs> like, like, that should be more institutional. Like, hey, you know, we, we do, like, the after 100 years, um, it becomes, like, a historical landmark. Um, but why not take it a step further and say, hey, this place has a soul now. Uh, let's treat it with respect. And... Um, Jumping off of that uh, that thought, when you have places that do maybe have more um, malicious experiences being reported there, we could look back on, okay, if this place is more than 100 years old, we believe that this now has a soul. Um, this soul is created by all of these experiences that this facility has seen. So with this hospital and all of the awful things that happened here, why wouldn't the soul be somewhat malicious? What about, yeah. what about the process between it happening, the soul developing, and then us interacting with it would, would give it this life altering um, change of behavior, change of a vibe, you know, if it was, if it was a traumatic situation and this soul developed, um, why would it not be malicious? Um, I think we need to offer some understanding there as well and maybe not view it as much of like, oh, I had a personal attack. This was very violent um, to, well, think about the things that happened here. Think about um, when you are, 
you know, in a negative situation and you're, and you just want help, um, you'll do pretty much anything to get that. So I, I, I feel like some of these places really are created by that. They have that soul. And um, unfortunately, not all of them are going to be positive and, and uplifting and fun. And I, I don't think that we should expect them to be because that's not nature. <laughs> no, absolutely. It, what you were talking about there makes me think of um, in, in Spirited Away, there's that river spirit that at yes. the beginning of the film is it's like this big sort of oily blob because it's because the river is so polluted but by the end the river's been cleaned and been sorted out and it's a completely different looking spirit and I can I can when you're talking about the the spirit of a, of a building that's had so much the horrible stuff happening in it you can maybe that's what it needs it needs care and needs help and things like that I, I, I like that idea I like that you brought that up because that's something that we've been contemplating a lot um, we know, you know, this is Spirited Away is, is one of the best films that's ever been made. And, and I, mm. I know a lot of people and at least the Little Earth community love it. And so um, a friend of mine, Katie Webb, she was on Haunt Me, this online paranormal show for about seven years. And, and they interact with a very polluted river and they um, basically come to a similar conclusion in, in how Spirited Away plays out. They say, OK, well, if we clean up this river, um, we can appease the spirit, but we, we believe that this is a water spirit that's very upset with the state of its river. And ever since I've heard that story, um, there's been two instances in our, our liminal earth lore where we feel like something very similar is happening. Um, the place with the oranges is called the Black Riparian Forest in Renton, Washington. And it is the site of a river that is very polluted. And it was, I believe somewhat cut off so it's not even running the way that it should be um and we believe and need to do more investigating there i think we're actually doing that this week um but going there and actually reaching out in similar methods that we did um at the sanatorium and say hey like what do you need how can we help um and i've already done this to an extent on my beach near my home that's also pretty polluted and got the same types of messaging um and so I think that there's something too spirited away and um, that whole thought process of like, what if, what if there are spirits in these bodies of water and they're upset with us? <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, if I'm out and about and I see some litter I'll, and I, I can do something with it, I'll try and pick it up to help out that little piece of land or whatever, because it, it feels like the right thing to do, you know? <laughs> yeah, someone's house. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. So earlier you were mentioning the liminal spirit, and I know that recently you guys put out the the liminal spirit oracle. So how did that project come about? And just give a brief description of, of what it is. Sure. So we have created an oracle system where you actually use pieces of your own environment to do the read. Now I know that there's some tradition in witchcraft where you can cast different items. I know that it's really popular to do charms and bones and things of the sort, and that's um, a form of geomancy. So we, we were originally thinking of this idea after an online seance that we did that was streamed through uh, Chaos and Shadows podcast. 
they host weekly seance Saturdays and, and we were lucky enough to be on one. And we each, the three of us are a little chaotic and, and how we approach things virtually. It's, it's kind of hard to, um, we all have such different expertises that it's hard to come together and just do like one Estes method or something. Like we had Garrett plug in an ethernet cable into his ground to try to contact his yard gnome. Then we had (laughs) uh, Jeremy doing some reading because he is, I mean, an amazing tarot reader and Oracle reader. He's created, you know, he's been the main voice in, in all of our Oracle systems. And then I'm, um, opening the circle and doing more of the witchy side of things. And, um, through that, we believe to have interacted with the luminal spirit in my property. And we even found a tree that has like a face right in my front yard. And Garrett saw the face during his session. And I went and I said, oh my gosh, like, how did he know that I have this tree face here? (laughs) And so I started leaving offerings for it and, and things of this sort. But afterwards we had the conversation of, how can we reach out to, you know, what we were calling the genus loci, but we like, there's something missing here. We, we need to, we need to explore this more and we need to see if there's ways that we can divine with this divine and even like try to make contact with this entity um, without using decks, without um, having to have all of this, these, this kitten caboodle, we like to say, um, it's as simple as just collecting things from your yard, from things that have that very entity's essence in them already. Um, and in the way, the direction that we decided to go was through a zine, which is later going to become a, a book. Um, and the only thing that you need is this zine and a handful of things collected around your yard. And the idea is to, I like to say before we even do the read, I like to start relationship building. And this is the witch side of me. Um, I really like building altars and leaving food offerings because who doesn't love food? And so uh, that's kind of my approach before I would even begin to do this, uh, this Oracle. Um, But you can use the Oracle to uh, divine as you would with tarot or Oracle cards, or you can do it as uh, the start of like a relationship building process. If, if that's something that you're interested in as well. Um, but to the, the actual approach that we planned here is really gathering twigs, branches, acorns, rocks, whatever's around you and casting them. And through casting them, there's, um, a chart of sigils that we've created. It's actually on the back of the zine. And as you look at what you've casted, you'll see which sigil represents the pattern that it was casted in. And then each sigil has its own reading. So just like any tarot card has its own explanations, um, so does the sigils. And through that, you you have a dialogue with this uh, liminal entity. And um, it's a really great way to start to get to know the environment around you. Um, We're we're advocates of getting to know the plants around you specifically because um, the way that we feel about getting to know plants and being familiar with them is also how we're starting to feel around um, the beings that live near you. Um, So when you are moving to an area and you don't recognize any of the plants, they all look like green blobs pretty much. But then over time, you start to recognize different trees, different shrubs, and it no longer looks like a green blob. When you're driving by, you can point out, oh, hey, there's my my hosta friend, and oh, there's my Douglas fir, and and these characters kind of come into focus for you. And it's it's 
it's really similar to like regular community building where you go to a gas station in your town and you don't recognize anyone. A couple years later, you know, you, you recognize the cashier, you recognize the regulars. And um, this is how we're approaching the system as well. Um, the more that you do these readings and, and start to build these relationships, um, the more liminal entities you'll be able to start recognizing and um, holding space for. And I think that's really beautiful. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, it makes me think of, I've mentioned this, I think, on a couple of other episodes, but um, when I used to live in a city called Nottingham here in the UK, on my walk to work, I'd walk through uh, an arboretum each morning. Oh, wow. And uh, there was a favourite tree I had, which I'd always say hello to on my walk to work, because it was a wonderful, it was a huge beech tree. It was magnificent. It, it, I mean, it's still there. It is magnificent. <laughs> but the more I did that, the more I noticed that... Uh, a, a robin would fly down and land right near me and sort of look at me and it did feel like I was becoming more f- part of that environment not not literally but just be- like you were saying because I was more familiar with it I was sort of interacting with it more it was that I think it was that interaction which made me feel like I was just noticing things more feeling more part of um of that community I guess that's so beautiful. I love that too because um, as I'm hearing you, you know, describe this, I'm I'm hearing you talk about this beautiful relationship with your with your liminal characters that you've created, and and I would even go as far as to say that um, that you are also a part of that environment. Um, I think that it's really hard in modern society to still consider yourself a part of the environment, right? We're so separated with our houses and our construction and our concrete. It's really hard to kind of picture ourselves still belonging in this environment, but when you really break it down, um, we do. And so when you're creating these relationships with this tree that you say hello to and this robin starts recognizing, I do think that they recognize, you know, that you are a part of the environment as well. And um, that like strengthens that bond. And um, I know that it's kind of difficult for us in the society to, to view it that way. So I'm hoping that maybe that's also um, kind of like a side effect of, of the Oracle is that you start to feel more like um, less of a stranger, I guess, in your own environment and um, feeling more at home in, in, in your space. Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, in, in the introduction to the Liminal Spirit Oracle, there's a couple of great analogies that I, I really liked. And the first one was comparing the liminal spirit to an antler um can you just talk a little bit about that yeah the antler um actually I'm actually spacing a bit on that so forgive me um that might be something that Jeremy's kind of ranted about more than I have (laughs) no no that's okay it was it was more sort of like like the tip of a prong is sort of a part of for example a a tree and then the next prong is the branch and then the, oh, the lower yes. down you go it's the tree itself it's sort of a there's like a community of spirits I suppose represented by the antler um I'm sorry for putting you on the spot there but oh no you're totally fine I just um yeah I I was like wait a second the antler because I was thinking about Anthor and our other oracle um I got a little confused there but yes yeah, so um so the antler is really just an extension of this animal, but then each antler has its own place. And you would argue that each antler is a piece of the community and the antlers together create. So the tree was a really good analogy too. And I think of um, 
I, I always go back to mushrooms. <laughs> um, so I think about how the, the fruit, the mushroom that we see is not, um, is not really the singular being. There's a whole network down there um, that would be very comparative to the antler analogy of like, there's all of these different extensions of it and they connect to the roots of different trees, shrubs, um, they communicate and um, yeah. So Jeremy's antler analogy is my mycelial analogy. <laughs> right. Okay. No, yeah, I, I get it. Another example that is in the Oracle is um, a type of creature called a, like a siphonophore. Which, um, and the example that is in the Oracle is a jellyfish. And, and this is something that I, I only really realized recently is that a jellyfish isn't one singular creature. It's, like it's, it's a collection of creatures almost. I guess that's another way of looking at the, the liminal spirit uh, in terms of how it works. Right. Oh, I love that too. Um, we've had a lot of, <laughs> we've had a lot of like jellyfish analogies from these different sects of liminal earth. And so we have the liminal earth spirit, but then we also have, um, we were talking about, uh, for Wufo, um, how there's like this queen jellyfish and we comparing it to the UFO. It was like a, a joke, but yeah, it's, it's, um, I really love the idea of, of, of seeing this jellyfish as a singular entity at first, but then as you get to know it, you, you uncover the layers, right? Um, and it, it almost reminds me of like, you know, just a biologist, you come across this new species of something, um, you know, you see this jellyfish and, and here it is, and it's this being, but as you get to know it over the years, you, you uncover, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a community, it's, it's a whole hub, and, and there are intricacies there, and so um, that's how we are approaching, uh, our, our liminal spirit or, uh, genus loci, if you will. Um, it's maybe not just a singular thing. And I love that Jeremy also included in the zine that it couldn't just be, um, it could be a singular entity or it could be that these liminal spirits even overlap. Um, so there's, there's intricacies to it and, and the way that you uncover it is by getting to know it, <laughs> building that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it can be really hard to sort of jailbreak your thought process from identifying individuals. And because I guess you, you, know, you sort of see yourself as an individual. So the first place you'll go to when you're interacting with something is to see that as an individual too. But I, I imagine with, with this, I mean, obviously with this, because it's described in the, in, in the manual is, I guess you have to sort of think of things differently in that regard. <laughs> right. And that's something that comes, you know, it comes pretty naturally as you progress into it. And as you build upon that, um, it's kind of like, you know, if you start interacting more with your community, like if you, um, if you're starting out just going to like the gas station once a week and you, you get to know the cashier, but then slowly you're like, Oh, I'm going to actually um, go to the post office here. And Oh, I think I'm going to volunteer and pick up trash on this Saturday. It's like, you, you view yourself as this like singular entity, but then as you're starting to involve yourself in the community, you're like, oh, I'm actually a part of something bigger here. And, and there's all of these beings involved as well. Um, it's not something that comes naturally to a lot of people. And it's something that almost experience has to trigger. And so um, I believe that, yeah, it'll kind of come naturally as you start to use the Oracle system and you start to build this relationship with whatever liminal spirit you're um, attempting to interact with. I think it's not something that you have to like consciously focus on. It's, it's like a natural byproduct. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned the WUFO uh, scheme that you, I guess it's a scheme um, that you guys have. <laughs> um, so that's the Wednesday UFO 
watch. Just tell us a little bit more about that. Sure. It started out um, just by a simple tweet by one of our friends, Maidlyn Kelly. Um, They are an astrologer. And they were discussing the Mothman prophecies uh, by John Keel and how there's a funny little passage in a hundred and something page about uh, Wednesdays at 10 p.m. being the most likely chance that one has of seeing a UFO. And that that's just what the data in the 70s presented. Um, there's arguments that it still holds true, um, but we we kind of took it and ran with it. And, and we started out with just saying, hey, like, let's get a group of our friends together and let's watch the skies virtually. And it is kind of taking a life of its own now. And um, we are coming up to week 16 this Wednesday, and we have a website and we have uh, like a merch store that helps fund the site. And then we have a variety of activities. Uh, it started with making UFO water in a similar fashion that you would to making like moon water and witchcraft. Uh, you just set it out on your Wednesday nights and let it infuse. Um, and then we've had things of um, what to do if you're cloudy. And here in the Pacific Northwest, we, we have many cloudy evenings. Um, so we have like guided meditations that we found and sky cameras. And and so the goal went from, hey, let's do this with a couple of our friends online to let's host this virtual event that is as accessible as humanly possible. Um, So we are trying to make sure that our friends in apartments and urban areas with light pollution can can do, you know, and feel a part of it as well. Um, So it's it's kind of its own thing, though. It's, it has its own life because each week something kind of new happens. We've starting to develop a bit of woofo lore even about, you know, the things that we're getting and what we're now calling our, our live contact sessions every week. And we, um, we do those around 8.30 now. And we have, like, friends joining us for the stream, but essentially we try to divine with cards and and different methods and then we have uh, an estes session with the the spirit box and the headphones and the blindfold and and we're just trying to reach out to what we refer to as aerial entities so that we can be inclusive and not just say oh it's the aliens because um when we get down to the very core of it we would be just as excited talking to like a bird <laughs> as we would be to an extraterrestrial <laughs> oh yeah definitely <laughs> i think that summarizes Wufa more than anything <laughs> So what sort of things have you seen on your sky watches as, as part of this? Right. Um, well, I've gotten to know the sky very well. Um, thanks to Maidlin, we actually have a stargazing side quest each week. And um, I can point out all of these different stars in the sky that reference to different constellations. And so um, I've seen a lot of like new stars. Um, and through some of the contact sessions, we've received things such as like um (laughs) people mentioning ufo pretzels there's a lot of food references um there's a lot of hints as to what some of these beings might actually be in ways of them saying themselves that they're cat people (laughs) (laughs) and then our viewers and our uh fellow woofers having a lot of cat synchronicities around the same time um but we did actually now, uh, in South Carolina, we had a woofower capture and film what they believe to be um, strange lights in the sky. Um, and it's it's very interesting and it's very exciting because we, we say, oh, this is Wednesday Night UFO Watch. 
But at the end of the day, we are really excited to just like get together and have something that we can share virtually over, you know, worldwide. We have someone out of Perth in Australia doing it as well. Um, and so we, we now have the actual UFO sighting, <laughs> but we're also getting to know our stars and we're also just as happy if we get to sit in a, in a chair and in a yard somewhere. Um, but I think like some of the strangest stuff that we've gotten isn't even coming from like our sky watches, but from like the pre-sessions, the, the live contact sessions. And it's just, um, it's quite amazing having like the different guests and, and like Katie Webb and I were doing something a couple of weeks ago where we were both under for Estes. And it was almost like we were having a conversation with each other without being able to hear. Um, but what's really interesting is a lot of this stuff is still pretty ciphered in that um, we're still trying to figure out what some of these like transmissions mean. And we keep getting a lot of um, mental images during the sessions of like doorways and gateways that we just can't seem to open or cross. And so there's this underlying theme of like, how do we open the door? And uh, when are the cat people coming back? And so it's, it's kind of silly. It's kind of fun, but we're still like exploring some strange phenomena and we're still getting viewers capturing actual lights in the sky. Um, I guess my question for the phenomenon and for Wufo in general is just like, when can I see one? I would really like, I would really like to see one. <laughs> just so I could say, Hey, we helped found Wufo and it actually worked, <laughs> but um, <laughs> no, that's just the joke. I, I don't really care if I actually see anything. <laughs> I'm just having a really great time and, and that's what it's all about. But, but things are happening anyways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a it's just a fun, novel thing to do. Like a lot of things, there can be this tendency to take things too seriously. I mean, in all fields, but, you know, you do find that in ufology and cryptozoology and, and areas of interest like that, there do tend to be people who take things too seriously and just will disagree with each other and... And there'll be polarizing opinions about what this this what this stuff is. Whereas, uh, like you guys are doing, it's 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 way more fun to just be open minded about it and just enjoy it. Right. Yeah. I find that if you set really strict expectations, you don't leave a lot of room for like the phenomenon to to flourish. Mm, mm, absolutely. Well, Bex, this has been a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I love being able to share stories and, and, and discuss theories. So thank you for doing that with me today. Not at all. If people want to find out more about the Wednesday UFO Watch and the Liminal Spirit Oracle and Liminal Earth, how best do they do that? Yes. So if you want to get your hands on a copy of the zine, we have the Oracle zine and others at liminalmall.com. If you would like to participate in WUFO, all you have to do is go to wufo.watch and there is a ton of information. You can read past posts, every single post we talk about, um, last week's recap, what were the plan is for that evening. Um, if you are interested in just seeing what Liminal Earth is all about, um, the best way to start would be for liminal.earth. That's our official map website, and we have over a thousand 100% crowd-sourced worldwide experiences of strangeness. Um, so you can read those. Uh, check us out on TikTok, Liminal Earth. We make a lot of really silly stuff and 
and we investigate places from the map. So those are the best ways to find us. And of course, we're on Twitter and Instagram under Liminal Earth as well. And we do have a Patreon that we're um, very active on and that you can find at the Liminal Earth Society. Excellent. Well, I'll make sure to put all that information in the show notes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Rick. You're very welcome. Thank you, Bex. Thanks. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Bex. If you haven't checked out the Liminal Earth website yet, it is well worth looking at, especially if you have a weird or spooky experience to report or would like to get involved with their paranormal investigation projects. You can also get hold of the Liminal Spirit Oracle and the Oracle of the Hypogeum. I have both and recommend them for anyone who is interested in divination or a fun addition to your magical practice. Please also consider rating this episode wherever you listen and sharing it on social media as it really helps the podcast to grow and to find new listeners. You can follow some other sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at SphereHQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. Until next time, be safe and well, and I hope you'll join me again soon for another episode of Some Other Sphere.